Well, hey, like I, I said previously, I'm the high school pastor here at Bay Life, and in just a few weeks, we've got a group of seniors that are going to be graduating, and many of them are going to be transitioning uh, into college. And I don't know about you, but college was a bit of a rocky time in my life. One of my proudest achievements during that time is I went to four schools in four years, all right? Yeah, you can imagine my parents were pretty excited about that, right? Uh, the third year in the third school that I went to was Western Illinois University. I was a history education major there, and in one of my upper-level history classes, we only had three grades throughout the whole semester. It was three large tests. So I'm sure you can do the math. Each test was worth 33% of our grade. Well, the first test came about in the semester, and I very foolishly waited until the night before the test to start studying. I sat down at my desk in my dorm room, looked at the clock. It was about 9 p.m. I realized my test was at 8 a.m. the next day, and that I now had about 11 hours to prepare for this giant test. Well, right about that time, my phone rang. Now, it wasn't my cell phone, it was my high-tech cordless phone, cordless phone slash answering machine duo, if you know what I'm talking about, some high-tech 90s technology. And it was one of my best friends who went to college somewhere else far away. And I thought to myself, I'll just talk to him for a few minutes. And then a few minutes went by, and a few hours went by, and finally when I got off the phone, it was almost midnight. And so now I was down to eight hours to study for this giant test. And so I pull out my folder, and I find my syllabus, and I think to myself, what is even on this test? What's it covering? I look at my syllabus, and there in the middle of the syllabus was this glowing and angelic statement. All right? This is what it said. If you miss a test in this class, for any reason, you can take the test during finals week with no penalty, all right? I remember reading that statement and literally laughing out loud, throwing my folder across the room, walking over and sitting in my comfy chair and turning on SportsCenter. And then I laughed again as I realized now I get to sleep in because I don't have to go to class at 8 o'clock in the morning. So I got out of the test that day for a while, right? But what we need to realize as followers of Christ is that we too will be tested. We will be tested. And when that test comes, there will be no syllabus clause that delays the test. We must be ready to respond with faith. And so this morning, we're going to look at a test in the Bible. It's not a test of history. It's a test of faith. It's a test of the heart. And many have declared this test to be the greatest faith test in history. It's the story of God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. It's found in Genesis chapter 22. And my hope is, as we study this story, that we will be more in awe of God 
so that we will be prepared more fully when our faith test comes around. And so, before Genesis chapter 22, we see that God has made a covenant with Abraham. He has told Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, that the Lord would be their God, and that they would be his people. But many years passed, and Abraham and Sarah were unable to have a son, which was essential for God's promise and covenant to be fulfilled. But then in Genesis chapter 18, God speaks to Abraham, and he gives him a prophecy, and he gives him a promise. And God tells Abraham that he and his wife Sarah would give birth to a son. And Abraham's response is laughter. The text literally says he fell on his face laughing, saying, how can this be? For I am 100 years old, and Sarah, my wife, is 90 years old. He's essentially saying, we're too old to have children. Sarah's womb has, has closed. Sarah's womb ha has closed, and it would take a miracle for us to conceive a child and have a baby. But God not only promises this son, also before he is born, God gives a name to this child. He tells Abraham that he's to name him Isaac, which means laughter. And soon after this, God, of course, is faithful and fulfills his promise, and Sarah gives birth to a son, and they indeed name him Isaac. And soon after this, God brings this greatest faith test into the life of Abraham. And that brings us to our text in Genesis chapter 22. And it brings us to really what is our main point for the morning, the main point of our text this morning. And that is, like Abraham, we need to fear the Lord so that we will trust and obey him. We need to fear the Lord. We need to be in awe of the Lord. So especially in times of tests and trials, we will trust and obey him. Look at the text with me. Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. This is what it says. After these things... God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And so the, the text starts with, after these things, which could also be interpreted sometime later. So after Isaac is born, or sometime later, the events in Genesis 22 follows. Now this phrase, after these things, is a vague phrase, and it doesn't clearly indicate how much time has passed at this point. So we don't know exactly how old Isaac is in this passage. But I'm guessing many of you have heard this story before and have read this passage, and when you hear it, you get in your mind some idea or some picture of how old Isaac actually is. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to just lean over to the person next to you on either side and tell them how old you think Isaac maybe is in this story. Right now, go ahead, lean over, throw a number out. You might be too high, you might be too low. You might be far apart in your guesses. Now, perhaps some of you pictured Isaac to be a pretty young boy. But from clues in this passage and from some other places and dates in Scripture, 
Uh, most biblical scholars conclude that Isaac is approximately 20 years old. All right? 20 years old. Some of you are rejoicing. Some of you are like, ooh, I was way off. Which, if you do the math, makes Abraham somewhere around 120 years old. And so, uh, this, this number, these numbers, will be important for us as we continue to interpret some pieces in this passage. We also see in verse 1, God says this, After these things, God tested Abraham. He tested Abraham. Here we know something that Abraham does not know. We know that this is a test. We know it's a test from God. But Abraham does not know this. He is experiencing it himself. But why would God test Abraham in this way? Well, what we're going to see from verse 11 is it seems to be pretty clear that Isaac had begun to become a rival in Abraham's heart to God. That Abraham, in some ways, perhaps, was allowing Isaac to be elevated in his heart above God, and that Isaac was beginning to become an idol of his heart. So God gives him this test. God rightfully and graciously gives him this test to remind Abraham who should be first in his heart. And then in verse 2, we see the test begins. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, God speaking here, he said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Wow, this would have been significant enough to crush a person even with the greatest faith. As I've mentioned before, many believe this is the greatest faith test in history. And I can tell you, standing here as a father myself, I have to agree with that statement. What we see here is God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son. But not just to sacrifice his son, it's his only son. It's his son whom he loves. It's his son who he's waited for for years and I put myself in Abraham's situation. And I think of my firstborn, a son named Silas. Now, my wife and I had to wait a long time for, for Silas, much longer than we wanted to. Now, thankfully, it wasn't 100 years like Abraham, all right? Um, but we got married and, and decided to wait a few years to have children. And then when we were feeling just about ready, she decided to go back to school to get her master's, and so we waited three more years. And then she graduated with her master's, and we decided uh, we, we wanted to try to have children, and we struggled with infertility for several years. And we went through the cycle, this roller coaster month by month of hope and then disappointment, and hope and then disappointment, month after month, year after year. And so several years had passed by. And thankfully, my wife uh, was able to get pregnant. And soon after that, we left together to go to Mexico to co-lead a mission trip. 
And while we were there, my wife experienced uh, a very difficult and trying miscarriage. But thankfully, a few months later, she was able to get pregnant again and gave birth to our first son, Silas, when we were 31 years old. And I can still remember to this day just so clearly standing in that hospital room and holding my son Silas for the first time and looking down into his sweet little face and feeling this love just rise up in my body, this love that I never knew I could possibly have for another human being. And now Silas is 11 years old. And he is quite literally the kindest, sweetest human being I have ever met. And so for me to think about hurting him, for me to think about sacrificing him, it's, it's just unbearable, especially when you consider the sacrificial process for a burnt offering, which Abraham knew all too well. It would have started uh, with running a knife across the throat of the sacrifice. It would have been followed by dismembering the sacrifice, limb by limb, piece by piece. That would have been followed by laying the sacrifice upon the altar and burning it until all that remained were ashes. And I just have to think that that Abraham wrestled with God that night underneath the stars as he contemplated this. And a great pastor from a century ago named A.W. Tozer said this about this passage. He said, possibly not until Jesus sweat drops of blood in the garden of Gethsemane did such a mortal pain visit a human soul. And surely Abraham asked questions like, What will happen to the promise of God if I sacrifice my son? What will my wife Sarah say when I return with the blood of our son upon my hands? And how can the last memory of my boy and my boy's last memory of me be me running a knife across his throat? He may have argued with God, And he may have wrestled with God throughout the evening. But we see from our text that by the morning, his faith has returned. Look at verse 3 with me. It says, So Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. And he took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. So we see Abraham decides to respond in faith. Abraham decides to trust the Lord, and he sets off on this journey. He he sets off on this journey to sacrifice his son. And what we see from Hebrews chapter 11 and from verse 5 in this passage is that the solution that Abraham's aching heart found in the middle of the night was the belief that God would raise Isaac from the dead after he sacrificed him. Now, Abraham may have been mistaken about God's method to save his son, but he was not mistaken about the faithfulness of God. He knew that his God was a God who keeps his word. He knew that his God was a God that keeps his promises. 
So he trusted, despite the emotions and feelings that may have been raging within him, he trusted in the promise and the power of his God in the midst of this test. And friends, this is one of the most crucial principles for us to know and hold on to when we find ourselves facing tests and trials of many kinds. We must not trust in our feelings and emotions, but we must rise above them and trust in the power and the promises of our God instead. And so there may be times when you find yourself in circumstances that feel like there's no hope. You may find times when you feel like your circumstances are dead. But instead of trusting your feelings, you must trust in the power and the promises of your God. And so, for example, if you find yourself in a marriage that seems hopeless, that seems dead, and and you feel like there's no hope, and you feel like it's time to get out of the marriage, instead, you trust in the power and the promises of God that he can resurrect your marriage, that he can bring new hope and new joy and new life to your marriage, and you choose to obey and trust in the Lord instead of decide based off of your feelings. This is what we see Abraham doing. And it wasn't just for a moment. It was for a three-day journey, which is what we see next in our text in verse 4. This is what it says. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. And so it was three days from the time that God told Abraham to sacrifice his son and go to Moriah. It took him three days to get there. And you just have to wonder, what was going on in the heart and the mind of Abraham during those three days? Yes, his faith was great, but so was his love for his son. And so I have to think, at times, as they were making this three-day journey, that Abraham walked along his son Isaac and he put his arm around him and he looked at him and needed to step away and weep at times. And perhaps at times, as they were journeying along, he fell behind the group that was traveling and his soul cried out in anguish to the Lord. And maybe at night, while his son was sleeping, he looked at him And he joyfully and proudfully remembered his son's first words, his son's first steps. And he remembered all the times that they had laughed together, that they had cried together, that they had worshiped their God together. And maybe he gazed upon his son's face and he tried to to etch every detail into his mind for he did not know if he would ever see his son again on this side of heaven. And then it was time for them to take the next step in their journey. And that's what we see in our next verse. It says in verse 5, Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And so we see Abraham, he tells the other people they're traveling with, he says, now it's time for the father 
and the Son to be alone together. We will go over here and we will worship and we will come again to you. Despite Abraham knowing that he's going to sacrifice his son on the altar and burn him to ashes, he has the faith to believe that God will restore him and resurrect him and that they will come back again together. John Calvin wisely states about this passage and this verse. He says, This example of faith is for our imitation. In such straits, the only remedy is to leave the event to God in order that he may open a way for us when there is none. Calvin concludes, we pay him, the Lord, we pay him the highest honor when in affairs of perplexity, we nevertheless entirely acquiesce to his providence. See, it's in the times when we don't know why. And it's in the times when we have no idea what the answer is going to be, that we need to have the most faith and draw closest to the Lord, trusting again in his power and his promises to provide. This is what Abraham did as he made the statement to his group. And so the father and the son, they step away. And this is what it says in verse 6 and verse 7. It says, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And so here we get a clue to the age of Isaac. We see from the text that Abraham lays the wood that Isaac would be sacrificed upon. He lays the wood on the back of Isaac for Isaac to carry. It certainly would have been too heavy for a young boy to carry, which is part of the clue that tells us how old Isaac is in this story. What we also see from this portion of the text is Isaac has no idea at this point that he is the one that is to be sacrificed. He says, Father, I see the wood, I I see the fire, but where's the lamb that will be sacrificed? And his father gives him this response in verse 8. Abraham says, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them, together. And so Abraham tells his son, God will be the provider of the sacrifice. And here they take the last leg of their journey together, which takes us to verse 9. It says, When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood, on top of the wood. Now here we're left, we're left without some very significant details. But again, from other places, we can conclude that Isaac is somewhere around 20 years old. And so what we know here is that Isaac could have very easily overpowered Abraham. Or Isaac very easily could have outrun Abraham. But that's not what happens. 
So we can conclude that Isaac, in great faith and in great obedience, he submits to his father. He submits to the plan of God to become a sacrifice for sin. And then the text says that Abraham, he binds Isaac and he lays him on the altar. He likely binds Isaac to keep him still, knowing how treacherous the sacrifice process was. And then that leads us to verse 10, which is largely the pinnacle of our story. It says, Then Abraham, he reached out his hand, and he took the knife to slaughter his son. Abraham here is acting in great faith, but I would not be surprised at all if he was absolutely weeping. And as Abraham raises his hand with a knife, I can't imagine the facial expressions that were being exchanged between a father and a son. And right at the last moment, but wait, it says, verse 11 says, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. The angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, for you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. I have no, no doubt that these were the sweetest words that Abraham had ever heard in his life as he raised the knife and heard the angel of the Lord say, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. Don't harm him. For now I know that you fear the Lord, for you have not withheld your son from me, your only son. See, God had put Abraham to the test to extract the one thing in his heart that had begun to rival God. And Abraham responded to this test in faith and obedience. And God returned his son to him. And God provided a substitute in the place of, of Isaac, a, a ram that was caught in the thicket. And Abraham sacrificed the ram in Isaac's place for sin. And I can only imagine as Abraham and Isaac are descending the mountain and returning home, what joy they experienced together as they reflected upon it. I can only imagine the absolute astonishment on Sarah's face as a father and son shared each and every detail of what they had just encountered. And I don't think I can fully imagine the rejoicing that took place in heaven as the faith and obedience of a father and a son were demonstrated before a holy and mighty God. And so, this morning, I have a question for you. What are the Isaacs of your heart? What are the Isaacs of your heart what are the things in your heart and in your life that you have allowed to become elevated 
above the Lord. What are the things in your life that you have allowed to become idols and have greater influence in your life over the Lord? Now, this certainly could be people. It could be a spouse. It could be a child in such a way that if you were to tragically lose this person or God were to take this person from you, that your response would not be faith and obedience as Abraham's would, but you would instead shake your fist at God and point your finger at him and have no peace or no joy as a result of that. It's a very clear indication that that person has become elevated above God in your life. But it's not only people that can become rivals in our hearts. It can also be things, and it can also be desires. It can be things like security. It can be things like comfort. It can be things like pleasure. It can be things like the approval of man. It can be things like possessions or desiring possessions. Now, most of these things these desires, there's nothing wrong with desiring them. But see, it's when these desires become demands that they become elevated above God and begin to rival him in our hearts. They, they, They become elevated. They become demands where we say, I will not be happy. I cannot have joy. I cannot have peace. I will not worship or love my God unless I have these things. I demand these things. I deserve these things. And God, if you don't give them to me, I will sin to get them or I will sin if I don't get them. I pray you would allow the Lord, that I would allow the Lord to reveal these rivals in our hearts. And then out of our our, our fear and awe of, of God, we would respond in trust and obedience and lay these things on the altar of God and sacrifice them, putting God in his rightful place. And then just one last thing. I'd like for us to consider this morning. And that is, how do we grow in our fear and awe of God so that we can more fully trust and obey him? Well, certainly I think a big part of the answer is from reading the word of God. And I can tell you this week, as I have studied this passage and read it over and over again, that my, my faith and my awe of God has increased during the process as I've considered the example of Abraham and Isaac. But do you know what really has increased my, my awe of God and what has really increased my faith in the Lord this week? It's as I've read this passage and as I've thought about the truth that God has orchestrated these events in each and every detail thousands of years before Christ was born to point us to another father and son. To point us to another son whose birth was prophesied and foretold. Not a few years before he was born, but over a thousand years before he was born. To point us to another son who was given a name by God before he was born. Not a name that means laughter, a name that means savior. 
to point us to another son who was miraculously conceived and born, not by an older couple, but by a humble teenager, a virgin named Mary, to point us to another son who very humbly and obediently gave up his life, submitted to the plan of his father, and became a sacrifice for sin. And to point us to another father, a father who desperately loved his one and only son, yet willingly sacrificed him on our behalf. And so friends, this morning, if you have marveled at the faith of Abraham to be willing to sacrifice his son, and if you have been in awe of, of, of Isaac and his willingness to lay down his life, how much more should we be in awe of our heavenly father who spared not his son for us? And how much more should we be in awe of Jesus who left the throne and willingly suffered and sacrificed and died in our place. And so when you think of Isaac carrying the wood upon his back, upon which he was to be sacrificed upon, allow it to lead you to Calvary, where Jesus carried the wood of the cross upon his back, which he was crushed under and crucified upon. When you think of Abraham laying his son on the altar, remember your heavenly father nailing his son to the cross. See the crown of thorns on his head. See how everyone around him mocks him. See the blood pour out from his wounds. And see him bow his head and give up his life. See, Isaac is saved, but Jesus, the God of Isaac, he dies. For Isaac, a substitute is provided. It's a ram in the thicket. Essentially, it's a lamb covered in thorns. But for Jesus, there is no substitute. He's the only one who can save us for our sins. So Jesus becomes the lamb of God, wearing a crown of thorns, sacrificed on the cross, bleeds and dies, sheds innocent blood on our behalf so that we may be made right with God. And so friends, this morning, if you have been in awe of Abraham's faith to believe that God would raise his son from the dead after his three-day journey, would you stand amazed that our heavenly father did raise his son from the dead after three days in the grave, conquering sin, conquering death, so that now whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And so, finally, how do we respond to all this? Well, in, in, in verse 11, we see that the angel of the Lord, he, he looks at Abraham and he says, now, uh, now I see that you fear the Lord for you have not withheld your son, your only son. We instead must look at the cross and say, God, now I know that you love me for you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And be in awe of God. Be in awe of the Father 
who sacrificed his son. Be in awe of Jesus who so willingly laid down his life for your sin. And then trust and obey the Lord. Remove the Isaacs from your heart and replace them with God alone. For he alone is worthy. Let's pray. Amen. 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 Pray with me. Father, we, we marvel, Lord, at your book. How glorious, Lord. Father, we're, we're just blown away how clearly these words that we have read this morning demonstrate and point to the coming of another son who would leave the throne of heaven and come to this earth fully God and fully man, humbly give up his life as a sacrifice for our sins, becoming the Lamb of God. So Father, what we want to do now is, Lord, we just want to stand and we want to praise you and we want to proclaim this truth and, and declare our awe for you, our Father who loved us so greatly that he did not withhold his son for us. We love you, Father. May your name be lifted high as we praise you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Sing with us with me as we respond to the word this morning. You came from heaven's throne To trade the debt we owe, you suffered for our freedom. The Lamb of God in my place, your blood poured out, my sin erased. It was
Hey, this week, may remember the love God has for us so clearly demonstrated by the cross. And may it cause us to respond in joyful trust and obedience as we worship our great God. Have a great week, Bay Life. We hope to see you Thursday for our brown bag prayer.